Welcome to the Central Community Church Podcast. We exist to be authentic followers of Jesus, leading others to follow Him by loving God, loving people, and serving our world. I'm Sebastian Bach, J.S. Bach, J.S. as I call him, J.S.B., I don't know. Uh, was one of the most famous and celebrated composers in history. If you played the piano, the organ, the clarinet, I don't know, you know, the traditional instruments, you've likely appreciated Bach. He wrote over a thousand compositions and he did something at the bottom of every single one of those manuscripts. He wrote the letters S-D-G which stood for in Latin, soli deo gloria, or as it's translated in English, to God alone be the glory. He stated the aim and final end of all music should be none other than the glory of God and the refreshment of the soul. The aim and final end of all music should be none other than the glory of God and the refreshment of the soul. That was what he said the purpose was, that it should glorify God. That's what music is for, to glorify God and to refresh our souls. Bach grew up in Eisenach, Germany, which was actually the same town where Martin Luther translated the New Testament into German and where Luther preached many sermons at St. George's Church um, over a century before, uh, before and after the Diet of Worms, which is actually something very different than what it sounds like. Um, he preached in this church in Eisenach, Germany and, and, and likely, um, in fact, Bach was very influenced by Luther. Luther is quoted as saying, um, really, the motto of the Reformation, the Reformation of the church in the 16th century was to God alone be the glory. And of that, Martin Luther said, resolved that every man should live to the glory of God. Resolved, second, that whether others do this or not, I will resolved that every man should live to the glory of God. All humanity should live to the glory of God. That's why we exist, he said. And his second resolve was that whether others do this or not, I will. He's quoted as saying at one point, a dairy maid can milk cows to the glory of God. That's just a great line. A dairy maid can milk cows to the glory of God. It's really his way of saying what the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10, 31. Whatever you do, do it to the glory of God. Whatever your work, you can do your work to the glory of God. You find your tasks menial, you can do those menial tasks to the glory of God. You find whatever you do for leisure, you can do that to the glory of God. Everything about your life ought to and can glorify God, even cow milking farmers. The Westminster Catechism said, it's, uh, the catechism, by the way, really just catechism means learning. And the Westminster Catechism is this, this process of asking a question and then there's an answer and you, you memorize both. And it's really only helpful if it sinks into your heart, but it is very helpful because all these truths about God um, come to your knowledge and uh, the very first question in the Westminster Catechism is this, what is the chief end of man? What's our grand purpose? Why do we exist? What is the chief end of man? The answer, man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. 
That's our great purpose. What's the purpose in your life? Why do you exist? You may give another answer. I'll tell you the real answer. (laughs) It's to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Or as Bach said, the um, music and everything else is for the glory of God and the refreshment of the soul. Isaiah 43, 7 puts it this way. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, God said, whom I formed and made. You were created for my glory, God says. And what this catechism teaches us is that as we glorify God, we get joy. So our aim in life, our purpose is to glorify God. So you may at first blush, hear that and go, that sounds like a very religious life. That sounds like a really boring life. That sounds like, right, a hard life, an unenjoyable life, right? To glorify God, there are so many things I would put on my list as like what I would like to do with my life than that and enjoy him forever. Like this just don't see, but these aren't actually going in different directions. Getting joy and enjoyment and refreshment in life aren't going in a different direction than God glorification. What this is actually telling us is that as we pursue more than anything in our lives, God's glory, we will discover that we'll get more joy in life doing that than any other route we could take in life. Um, Let me give you an example. Um, When I was a kid, I took a screwdriver from my dad's toolbox. He had about five tools, just like I do today. And one of them was a screwdriver. And uh, I took it, I rode my bike down the hill to where a park was there, and there was a big manhole there, and I decided what I wanted to do was crank that thing open and play with the Ninja Turtles inside, underneath, So, uh, like you do. So I I took the screwdriver and I stuck it in the manhole, and I tried to to prop that thing open, and I got it open a little bit, stuck my fingers under. Good plan. You know, you're like seven or something, so a lot of strength, similar to what I have now. But just took that, propped it open, put my fingers in, took the screwdriver out, ready to lift that thing, and down it went, smushing my fingers. So then I had to grab the screwdriver again and just try and get it open enough to get my fingers out. And what I've discovered, and many of you have done all kinds of things with a screwdriver, right? We use a screwdriver for all sorts of things, many of them having nothing to do with screws. But what I have discovered about a screwdriver is, you know when it works best, you know when it functions best, is when the the screwdriver head fits perfectly to the screw you're using, and it actually does a great job of screwing things in and out. Um, So it is with us. We were made to glorify God and nothing fits like living for our intended purpose. We try and use our lives for all kinds of other things, but you know what? You know when our lives work best, when they function best and are optimized both for God glorification and um, our enjoyment is when we're living for that very purpose that we were created. And so we wanna see that happen this morning. We see it in the text, but I've already talked about God's glory about 19 times. Let's start to define that, which is easier said than done, by the way. Let's try and define the glory of God. Well, the most common Hebrew word uh, for glory is kabod, and it means weight. So think of, think of this weight as a boulder that is so huge that there's just absolutely no way you can budge that thing. Like that's God's glory. It's a weight that just, we just have nothing that can touch it, that can move it. it. His glory is so weighty. It has importance and worthiness to it. And the glory of God is the manifestation of his holiness. I found this definition helpful. Um, God's holiness 
is his incomparable, intrinsic, infinite worth. He is so set apart and so far above in greatness, value, and perfection. He's just so other. And the glory of God is the manifestation of his holiness. You climb to the top of the mountain and you just catch a glimpse of the beauty of creation. That beauty, you're just getting a little taste of God's glory. It's, it's God's holiness on display. When you catch a glimpse, when there's a holy moment, that's God's glory. Just, you caught a glimpse of it. It's on display, like Moses seeing where God just was and his face is glowing. It's just a, a sampling of his glory. The glory of God is the manifestation of his holiness. We're talking glory this morning. That's where we're going. So if you have a Bible, why don't you turn to John chapter seven. We're picking up right where we left off last week. Um, early in, in John chapter seven, um, Jesus' brothers who don't believe that he's the son of God, that he's the Messiah, but they're seeing his works and they're amazed by him, are telling him, go to Jerusalem and, and do these, these cool works, these amazing things you do in front of a crowd. That's what you should do if you have this kind of skill. And, uh, and they tell him to go up and Jesus says, no, my time has not come. And he goes on um, to send them on their way, but then he quietly goes sort of, in secret, but we pick it up in verse 14, and not only has he gone to the Feast of Booths, uh, last week some people thought I was talking about the Feast of Booze, um, it's the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles, it would be a compelling reason to become Jewish if it was the Feast of Booths, but it's not, it's the Feast of Booths. Let's go up in verse 14 before I get carried away, I think we're already there. Uh, John chapter seven, verse 14. And the middle of the feast, at the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. So he has said in the previous verses, my time's not come yet. And so I'm not going. And then he secretly kind of quietly goes by himself. And now he just steps into the middle of the temple and begins to teach. And the Jews therefore marveled saying, how is it that this man has learning when he's never studied so Jesus answered them, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true. And in him, there is no falsehood. Put your finger on verse 18. That's where we're gonna camp out, but let's keep moving for now. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? And the crowd answered, you have a demon who is seeking to kill you. So Jesus is talking to this crowd in the middle of Jerusalem. Remember, all of these people are coming from out of town to the feast and they're enamored with Jesus and his teaching. They're marveling at it. And then Jesus says, you don't keep the law and you wanna kill me. And this crowd that are marveling at his teaching are going, no, we don't. Is this guy out of his mind? Does this guy have a demon? We're not trying to kill you. The crowd, answer, the crowd answers them, you have a demon and who's seeking to kill you? And Jesus answered them, I did one deed and you marvel at it. This one deed is the deed at the beginning of chapter five when he healed a crippled man on the Sabbath. He goes on to say, Moses gave you circumcision. Not that it's from Moses, it was given to Abraham, it's but from the fathers and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. So just, let's just pause here for a second. 
Um, Jesus is talking about really the reason they want to kill him because Jesus healed a man's whole body on the Sabbath and told him to pick up his mat and walk. And the picking up of his mat was considered work (laughs) to them. He's carrying his mat on the Sabbath. And Jesus is like, use right judgment here for a minute. I, there was a man whose whole body was unwell. In fact, for over three decades, he, he lay by the gate of Bethesda, crippled. And I healed his whole body and told him to pick up his mat. And you're saying it's work? Judge by right judgment. You circumcise an eight-day-old baby boy in the temple. That's your practice because that's what the Mosaic law tells you to do. And so what you go to do so you don't break the law is you circumcise on the eighth day and sometimes that's on the Sabbath. So you're dealing with one part on the Sabbath and it's a part that gets removed. Um, I'm healing the whole body on the Sabbath and you're complaining that I'm breaking the Sabbath? Don't you see that I'm the Lord of the Sabbath? Don't you see that this is what the Sabbath is for, for your good? And so he's telling them to judge, not by appearances, but by right judgment. Assess what's going on here. Take a look. Judge with right judgment. He goes on to say, some of the people, verse 25, of Jerusalem therefore said, is not this the man whom they seek to kill? So, Here's, here's members from Jerusalem. These are Jerusalemites. These are the locals. They know that some of the leaders were plotting to kill Jesus. They, in fact, wanted to destroy Jesus. And so this group of people listening to Jesus say, is this not the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ, the Messiah? But we know where this man comes from, and when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So this is a little bit of folklore. Um, they, they, there, there was this, this belief that when the Messiah comes, he'll just sort of show up out of nowhere, and they'll clearly know that he's the Messiah, and no one will know where he came from. So it, it's a bit of, of, of folklore that this is how he's going to appear. And yet, actually, if you read the beginning of Matthew chapter 2, these wise men show up to Herod and say, where's the king of the Jews? Where's the Messiah that's to be born? And Herod's concerned, and the chief priests and the Levites, and they're all concerned. And what do they say? They say, well, we know that he's to be born, the prophecy says that he's to be born in Bethlehem, the the town of David. And so tradition and scripture says it's Bethlehem, but folklore has kind of said, we don't know where he's going to come from. The Messiah is just going to show up, but we know where this guy comes from. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, you know me? And you know where I come from? But I have not come on of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him. And he, that's God the Father, sent me. I come from God. So they seek to arrest him, but they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. We talked about this last week. God's providential hand is over Jesus for his perfect timing for Jesus to go to the cross, but the time has not yet come. So even though they want to arrest him, try him, kill him, they can't lay a hand on him because in God's providence, Jesus' time for that had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, Will he do more signs than this man has done? This man is amazing. Surely this is the Messiah. Just like the end in verse 13 of our passage last week, some believed and some didn't. 
So we're just going to work our way um, through really verses 16 to 18 this morning and look at God's glory. Let me pray and we'll carry on. God, just by way of confession, um, so much of my life isn't lived unto your glory. And I am so helped, and I pray that we would all be so helped by the truth in this text that everything is for your glory. And when we get that, when we believe that, and when we live that way, nothing will be the same. Everything will be greater. Lord, would you teach us this truth precisely for your glory? Amen. So let me just give you a little more context here. Um, In verse 15, it states that the Jews therefore marveled saying, how is it that this man has learning when he's never studied? Jesus gets up in the middle of the temple at at the Feast of Booths where it's really uh, crowded because it's one of the major feasts and times that people would migrate to Jerusalem. And Jesus gets up in the middle of it all and begins to teach and they're amazed, but they're, they're marveling and they're perplexed because he's teaching in a way that no one taught. There was no kind of desire to be original in that day. You just didn't teach that way. Everything you said was a quote of your rabbi, of your teacher. And and it was either of the one who taught you or the one who taught them who taught them. You were constantly quoting the teachers. This is what they taught. No, I'm not saying an original thing on my own at all. I'm just telling you what those who taught me said. And so Jesus gets up and he's just proclaiming and they're amazed and they're saying, this, this man clearly knows the word of God. This man clearly has understanding. This, and yet he has, he has learning and yet he doesn't seem to have teaching. He's not teaching in the way we teach. He's not quoting anybody that, that, that's typically quoted. What's going on here? They're impressed with his learning. And Jesus answers them, my teaching is not mine. In other words, I am not speaking on my own authority. I'm speaking on the authority of, the, of another. And the one on whom his authority is, is the, that, that is the one who sent me. Sorry, that was confusing. It's that, that one who sent me is the authority of mine. Jesus is actually getting a lot of glory from these people. They're saying, wow, he's amazing. He seems to be an original. He's not quoting like others quote. He's just saying these thoughts as if there is his own. And Jesus says, no. Everything I say comes from God the Father, he says. Jesus deflected from self-glory to God's glory. He's saying, if you're going to be impressed, be impressed with God because God sent me. This is precisely what he said in John 12, 49. I have not spoken on my own authority, Jesus said, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak Everything that Jesus said was on the authority of God the Father. Jesus was so in perfect submission to the will of the Father that every word he spoke was God's word to the people. Jesus really embodies that. Jesus is God the Son in the flesh, the God-man, the embodiment of the word. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. Jesus is God taken on flesh, saying the very words of God. But even as he, the Son, is getting glory, he's deflecting that glory to God and saying, if you're gonna be impressed, be impressed with my Father. 
Now it gets a little more complicated. He says in verse 17, if anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. Jesus is saying, if your will, your heart's desire is to do the will of God, you'll know whether I'm speaking on my authority or the authority of another, God's authority. Now, this is really helpful for us. If your will is to do God's will, you can know whether Jesus is teaching with God's authority and not his own. If it's your will. Now, this hopefully refreshes some of you because some of you, I think, would probably be saying right about now, especially if you're exploring the faith, you're saying, I just need to learn more. I just need to figure more out and then I'll understand. And Jesus is saying, if your heart's desire is to do the will of God, if that's what your heart desires to do his will, you don't have to have all the knowledge first. The knowledge will come. But the way that the knowledge will come is that your heart's bent is towards God and his glory. That your heart's bent is towards him being praised with your life. And then you will see Jesus for who he is. You will be able to discern his words. Jesus goes on to say in verse 18, The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true. And in him, there is no falsehood. What Jesus is saying here is, the way you can know that he is true is that he seeks God's glory above all things and not his own. In John chapter eight, verse 50, Jesus says, I do not seek my own glory. And so he says, if your will, your heart's desire is to do God's will, you will just, if that's your posture, then you will see Jesus for who he is. You will judge rightly. You will judge correctly in a way that sees Jesus as the one who is simply not bringing glory to himself, but pointing all glory to God. And that will be proof telling. See, those whose will is to do God's will will see that Jesus was God glorifying and not self-glorifying. And to be honest, that's contrary to the way that all of us live. That's contrary to us. We have exchanged the glory of God for other things. So Jesus' brothers see his impressive works and they say, go show everybody. Get some glory for yourself. Jesus shows up in front of the crowd at the temple and he's speaking and, and, and it's not his works this time that's impressive, it's his words And they're marveling at him, but he there again is not deflecting, uh, he's not taking glory upon himself, but he's deflecting glory towards the Father. See, when Adam and Eve were created, they were a true image of God because they were God-centered and not self-centered. Their singular desire before sin ruined everything was to glorify God and delight in him. When they sinned against God, though, everything changed. Instead of thinking about how great and wonderful God is, they began thinking about themselves and what it would be like to live for their own glory and their own pleasures. And seeking glory for ourselves has been our bent ever since. Our, our, our motivation naturally is to self-glorify, not God-glorify. It is the deep roots of sin that though we were created to glorify God, the motivations of our heart naturally is to self-glorify. Charles Spurgeon said, the moment we glorify ourselves, since there is room for one glory only in the universe, we set ourselves up as rivals to the most high. We live in the age of the selfie. 
we are self-glorifiers. But we are compelled by Jesus and his word to deflect and direct all glory to God. Can I just, just for a couple of minutes, I just want to talk about the preaching ministry at Central and, and we have a real philosophy around it. It's simple, but it's important. And we, we preach in an expositional way. And, and that's with great intentionality and I'll, I'll work that out here in a minute. But the reason we preach in an expository way is that really we, we just take a few verses at a time and, and we, we mine their depths for what God intended, what God meant in context, what those verses mean. And so we spend time mining the depths of God's word in those few verses And the purpose for that is so that we can be faithful to what he said, what he said in its context and what the the meaning is uh, for all time, timelessly. And it doesn't always work out the same way. We don't give holy kisses anymore, right? But there's actually a timelessness to what God instructs in that, that. And that's that we greet people well. Right? We no longer worry about head covering or not head covering, but there's still meaning underneath all of that. And so we have to mine kind of the depths of what it meant in its context and what it means for all time. But what we do in expositional preaching is we just, right, right now we're just working through a few verses of John. Next week, you're gonna get the next set of verses. And the reason we do that and what the preacher's task is here at Central is simply to mine the depths of those words that we believe are authoritative, are God's, and we tell them to you. And as we do that, we can say, thus saith the Lord. And that's one of the rare times that I'll ever use the King James Version, but it just seems to have a little more punch. God says, this is what God says, thus saith the Lord. And the only way we can do that here is because we're so confident that we're just telling you the few, what the few verses mean that we are looking at this morning. So I just I have to say, Unfortunately, this is becoming more and more rare in the modern church, is, hey, let's hit a topic. Let's talk about marriage. I'm going to give you some of my best thoughts on what I think marriages ought to look like. And I'm just going to go and I'm going to, I'm going to grab a verse here and there and I'm going to work it in. But I've got an agenda. I already wrote my points before I even opened the Bible. But I'm going to make some verses fit into my points because I've got some things to tell you about marriage. And that's where the sermon goes that morning. And as that happens, and I work the verses that I want to fit, I put them into their place, and I proclaim that to you. You know what it is? There's no thus saith the Lord. It's simply what I think marriages ought to look like today. But the difference is, is when you take a text, like in 1 Corinthians 7, where the Apostle Paul says, this is how your marriage ought to look. When you take Ephesians 5, and you preach those few verses, and you say, this is how marriage ought to look, it's God says, this is how marriage ought to look. And there's an extreme difference. And there is such a lack in our churches today for expository preaching that looks at a few verses and says, God, what are you telling us? And the only reason that I start to get loud like I am right now, the only times I do is when I can confidently say, I know this to be true of our God. Because if I'm just speaking on my own authority, look, I won't even follow my own advice. I just know it's bad. Like, please, if I'm just speaking for me, like, don't follow that. There's just no reason to. But if God said it, if you're looking down at your Bible and saying, yeah, that's there. As you're speaking, that's precisely what these verses are saying. Then that's what God said to you. And as God states that to you, it demands a faithful response. It demands that you wrestle with what God has told you on Sunday at church or in devotional on Monday morning in the quiet 
at your kitchen table. If God said it in his word, it demands a response. It's authoritative and our lives ought to be altered by what we see in his word. So we get up here and we say, this is what God said. This is what God is saying. And this is how it changes everything. And this is how our lives look. And this is what it looks like in light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is who he is. This is his message. And when he even has a sniff of that's Matt's message, forget it. Please forget it. But when you look in the word and say, yeah, that's what God says. Oh, don't let it go in one ear and out the other because that is what God has told us. There's another challenge in here when we take the word authority and we also take the word glory is that we're so tempted to live for God's glory. Here's a tension I face. Here's a tension that Pastor Josh faces, other worship leaders faces. We get up on a stage that has light shining on it. It's amplified and off we go. And yet the only thing that ought to happen in the church is that God get the glory. And we need to take our cue from Jesus Christ. And Jesus, the son of God is speaking and the crowd want to give him glory. And he says, I only speak on the authority of my father. To God be the glory. If we're disciples of Jesus, we live that way. We follow Jesus' cue and say, I'm, I'm not here for any glory of my own. So I truly believe that the only good I can do around here and the only good we can do around here is proclaim God's word with authority in a way that only God gets the glory. that we would live for his glory. And as I say that about me, and as I say that about the preaching of the word, I actually say that about you. Whose authority are you living by? Is your life submitted to the authority of God's words? As he speaks, you say, yeah, I'll submit to that. I'll bend my will, I'll bend my life to what he says, for it is true. You living by your authority, God's authority. Lastly, are you living for your glory or his? Whose glory are you living for? What a waste of our lives if our efforts are put into self-glorification. If that's where our, our efforts in work, if that's where our efforts in thought, if that's where our efforts in pastimes are going, if our efforts in, in group settings, if it's all going to self-glorification, what a waste of our lives. It robs the people in our lives and it robs God. And of course, our, our glory is just lame in comparison to the infinite worth of the glory of God. We were created to bring glory to the one true, perfect God that when glorification goes to God, everybody wins. Life is best. When any glory goes to me, it gets faulty and sinful real quick. So it's for our good and to God's glory that our lives deflect glory to him direct our glory towards him and not ourselves. So what possesses people to risk marginalization and rejection in order to share the gospel? The authority of the word and the glory of God. What possesses people to sell all that they have and follow Jesus? It's only the authority of the word and the glory of God. What possesses people to live counterculturally even when it costs them? Well, it's because of the authority of the word and the glory of God. What possesses people to persevere in their faith in Jesus when hardships and sufferings are mounting in Job-like fashion? The authority of the word and the glory of God. What possesses people to get baptized 
become ministry partners? Why would you surrender your rights and put yourself on the line like that? Why would you do those things? Well, it's because you believe in the authority of God and you want your life to glorify God. If you have never given much thought to this or perhaps haven't for a very long time, I want you to just take a moment and consider that the purpose of your life is to bring God glory. And as you bring God glory, and it may seem counterintuitive, but as you live towards that prize, that goal, that purpose in life, you will get more joy, you will get more refreshment, you will get more satisfaction. Let me focus this just a tiny bit more as we conclude and then we'll respond. In the midst of all of our glory seeking for ourselves, Jesus came, seeking only to bring glory to the Father. And as he agonized in the Garden of Gethsemane before he went to the cross, he prayed, Father, take this cup from me, this cup of wrath, this cup of crucifixion, this, this, this cross, this agony and the bearing of all sin on his shoulders. He says, please, Father, take this from me, but not my will be done, but yours, he declared. And Jesus went on to do God's will and glorify God the Father to the end. He saw it through And as he perfectly submitted under the authority of God, as he gave his whole will to doing God's will, and he saw it all the way through because of the God-glorifying, sin-atoning, finished work of Jesus Christ, we get saved and God gets glory. It's an incredible truth. Jesus was faithful to glorifying God in all things even the death and resurrection that brings us the opportunity for our guilt to be paid for, our penalty to be paid, our sin to be atoned. And he finished his work of doing God's will and glorifying his father on the cross. I'm gonna pray and then I'd love for us to spend some time in response. Father God, I'm convicted again that the only good we can do around here is proclaim your word with authority in a way that you alone get the glory. As John the Baptist said, you must increase and we must decrease. And that is so the Christian life that as we discover you more, walk with you more intimately, We recognize this impulse, this desire that's changing our affections where you would get all the glory and we would get none. And Lord, for some of us in the room, we live lives where we want all the glory and giving God glory with our lives is hardly a thought. God, I pray in the infancy of that kind of faith that you would grow it in such a way that as we grow in our sanctification, becoming more like you, you would get more and more glory and we would take joy in getting less and less glory. So we surrender our pride. Lord, we surrender our desires for self-glorification and say to you alone, be the glory God. 
That is our heart's desire. We praise you that the one we are to become more like, that we are being changed more and more into the image to is Jesus, whose sole desire was to do your will to the last word and to the last action, the cross, where you would get glory. So Father, thank you. I pray that we would be a God-glorifying people for your fame and for our joy. In Jesus' name. Amen.